0: Just getting our spiritual recharge Uh, after a busy week thus far. I hope you've had a great one. Take your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter number 18. 1 Samuel chapter number 18. Uh, We began this chapter last week and dealt specifically with friendship. And if you weren't able to be here last Wednesday for any reason, I hope that you'll go back and uh, you'll listen to the message from last Wednesday night. Uh, just some practical things on the right, having the right kind of friendships and uh, the right kind of friend that we all need to be and just trying to establish some of those boundaries in our lives, and then also uh, making sure that our friendships uh, are in the right sphere. We talked about that uh, circle graph, and how uh, we'll have acquaintances that become a part of our group, and our group becomes our tribe, and our tribe becomes our close friends, and then it goes to our best friends. So I hope you'll go back and listen uh, to that message. But tonight, uh, we want to build on that thought, and we want to talk about uh, that relationship between David and Jonathan. And what happened after that? We saw that David and Jonathan had this friendship, uh, this close-knit relationship that's a model for us to copy in our daily lives. And David is now living in the palace. He's best friends to the king's son. He is the king's armor bearer. He's a hero among the people. And this is a perfect scenario for this young adult uh, named David. And you would look at this life, this guy's life and say, man, what could possibly go wrong in David's life? It's, he literally has it made in this part of the story. But as we see in verse number 5 of 1 Samuel chapter 18, everything goes south in a hurry. And isn't that our lives at times? where everything's going great, and we'll talk about it a little bit on this coming Sunday, but as we get out of a storm, and we're like, "Whoo, man, that was, Whoo, I'm sure I'm glad that the Lord helped me through that one, and it seems like, boom, we're hit with something else uh, right in that, and that's where David is. Man, kills Goliath, everything's going great, best friends with the king's son, what could go wrong? Everything, everything, and if you're taking notes, uh, you can write down number one, the temperaments, the temperaments. Uh, Temperaments. I I need to learn how to spell Uh, the temperaments. Sorry about that. Uh, Just blame the guy who's who typed it in. Uh, That's me. Uh, Verse five. uh, The Bible says, "And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him, and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the also in the sight of Saul's servants." And it came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, with instruments and music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Verse 8, And Saul was very wroth and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have described unto David ten thousands. And to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And verse number 9, very key. And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. Saul eyed David. So think about the fact that everywhere David went, we see that he was successful. Good relationship with the king's son. He went into battle, he won. When he came home and had relationships with other people and talked to other people in town, everybody loved him. When he had difficulties in life, the Lord worked it all out. Everything David touched turned out right. Everything that he was doing was right. This is a perfect situation for David to be in. But while he's working, David doesn't realize that there's something going on behind the scenes that he's getting ready to find out about. While he's trying to do everything that is right, the hearts of the people are turning to David. The hearts of all of the servants of Saul, we see in verse number 5. He was doing well in the sight of all the servants of Saul. Everything was pointing to David. But you think about as people were pointing to David, and their allegiance is pointing to David, just like the Lord said was going to happen. As everything is flowing towards David... It's turning against Saul. You know, we think about at times in succession and transition. Maybe you've gone through a transition at work or a succession at work and you've got a new boss versus an old boss. It's almost impossible for people to disconnect loyalty from the previous leader to the new leader when the guy is still right there. And that's what we see happening. People are... Trying to disconnect loyalty. We like this guy. And Saul is feeling, man, I don't have as many friends on Facebook as I used to. I don't have near as many people texting me. Now they're texting David. But what was it that made David so easy to follow? The Bible says in verse number 5 that everywhere David went, he behaved himself wisely. He behaved himself wisely wisely. The phrase is used four times about David all in this chapter in in 1 Samuel 18 and it became his testimony. Everywhere he did he behaved himself. Now I know we kind of jest and say hey you make sure you behave yourself but it literally means that everything that he did he pondered the end result of his decisions before he chose. He pondered the end result. Okay, if I make this decision and I go this way, what is going to happen? How will that all shake out? What will that do? How many people will be affected? He thought about, think about it, he thought about every decision he made before he made the decision. Isn't that a novel idea? The fact that he thought about what he was going to do and how it will work itself out. Uh, Proverbs chapter 4 in verse number 26, the Bible says, Ponder the path of thy feet and let all thy ways be established. Ponder. Think about the direction that you're heading so that when you get there, you're not surprised. Oh, man, Pastor, how in the world did I get here? It was the direction your feet were pointed. That's how we get where we are. It's the direction that our feet are pointed. Now, think about a fork in the road. You know, a, a friend of mine locally uh, just did a, a video uh, on social media and he was talking about forks in the road and he had a fork literally laying in the middle of the road. And that's, that's not what we're talking about. Okay, uh, We're talking about you come up to a place where you have no choice but you have to go one of two directions. You might go different paths and they may intersect again. Those two paths may come back together at some point but each one of those directions is going to take you a different route. And sometimes when we make choices, we may end up where we were originally going to. But the choice that you and I make will take us a route that we may or may not want to go. We may, it may work out. Pastor, uh, I made this decision. It was a bad one. But man, the Lord worked it all out. Praise the Lord. But that doesn't mean that you had difficulty along the way that could have been avoided. And we look at David's life, he pondered everything. He behaved himself wisely. But we're not just told that we're to ponder our own path, consider our own ways. We're also told that we're to consider the ways of other people. In Hebrews chapter number 10 and verse 24, the Bible says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. That requires me to consider the relationships that I have with others and say, are those the ones that I should have in my life? Just because you can be friends with someone doesn't mean that you have to be friends with that person. Just because you can be friends with someone or that coworker or that neighbor doesn't mean that you should be friends with that co-worker or neighbor. Where will that path lead you? Are we pondering the path of our feet? You think about when you come into church on a Sunday morning. There are 350 people here this past Sunday. It is impossible to be friends with everybody as much as we might try. I mean, I'm going I'm to meet somebody new today. Well, you might meet them. You might know their name. You might know where they sit. But that doesn't mean that they're your friend. I mean, honestly... So when we come into church, we think, man, I have to know everybody's name, and I have to meet everybody, and I have to know uh, what everybody does for a living, and I have to know these details about Stop stressing yourself out and say, you know what? Let me just find some friendships that I can just go deep in, and I'm going to be okay with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I, I understand that there's this whole thing about you know being involved in a clique, and you know it's us four and no more. I, I get all that. But in reality, you will only be friends with a few people. As one person said, if you get to the end of your life and find that you've had five close friends throughout the entirety of your life, you've been a very successful person. Five people. How many of us know people that, man, you may have gone to high school with or you went to college with and you're like, besties for life. You don't even know where that person lives right now. You don't know their phone number. You don't know anything about them. They they don't even exist anymore. And you thought at that time, we're always going to be close. But our friendship and seasons of life change. And so do our group of friends, the people we spend time with. But there is a point of having friendships. Proverbs 18, verse 24. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. And there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. We need those friendships. We talked about that last week. Uh, Paul Chapel wrote an article seven years, uh, several years ago, entitled Seven Ways to Be a Godly Friend," and I want to just give these to you rapid fire. And uh, if you want to write them down, you can. But here are the ways: seven ways to be a godly friend. Number one, godly friend. And these won't be on the screen. Uh, number one, godly friends sharpen each other. They you you think about your friendship that you have, you sharpen one another. Uh, you get stronger spending time together. Uh, There are things in your life we talked about last week where you can uh, point out in somebody's life and it makes you better. Godly friends sharpen each other. Number two, godly friends assure each other through adversity. They assure each other through adversity. You go through a hardship or a trial or a problem or a difficulty, you need those friends around you saying, hey man, just hold on a little bit longer. I'm praying for you. Let's sit down and uh, let's talk this out. They help you through adversity. Number three, godly friends participate with each other. They participate with each other. Uh, what kind of a friend would you be if you never spoke to each other? If you never did anything together? If you didn't communicate, they participate with each other. And uh, Number four, godly friends rejoice for one another. Yeah, There there may be a hint of jealousy when one of your friends comes in with that brand new car or that brand new honey on their arm. Uh, There may be a hint of jealousy, but you need to be like, hey man, that's awesome, excited for you. Godly friends rejoice with each other. Uh, Number five, godly friends forgive one another. Now, I don't know about your friends, but me and my friends, uh, we're not always the nicest to one another. And there are times in our lives where we have to say, I'm sorry. And we forgive and we move on. Godly friends forgive one another. Number six, godly friends do not share or harbor anger. That's a big one. Do not share or harbor anger. That person ticked me off and I'm going to go tell six other people what kind of a jerk they are. No, no, no. Godly friends do not share or harbor anger. I'm not going to hold... Any kind of resentment, I'm going to handle it right. I'm going to Matthew chapter 18, I'm going to go to that person. I'm going to talk to him. We're going to talk it out. So that when we're done, we've gained our brother. We're back on the same page. We're on the same team. Number seven, godly friends spark the truth in each other. We spark the truth in each other. As we have these godly friendships, as we have these relationships with each other, there should be an era of, an era of truth in everything that we share. There should not be secrets among friends. I understand there's a limit to that, but when we share things with each other, there's accountability, there's transparency. Godly friends spark the truth in each other. And you might say, well, you know, Pastor, I just don't have any friends. I I don't know a lot of people, and I don't have a relationship with a lot of people. I'm just not that kind of a friendly, outgoing person. I like what Zig Ziglar said. He said, if you go out looking for a friend, you're going to find they're very scarce. But if you go out to be a friend, you'll find them everywhere. If you go out to be a friend, that goes back to Proverbs 18. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. If you're the person who's going to sit in the corner and you're never going to talk to anybody, you're never going to engage a conversation, you probably won't have a lot of friends. But if you go out to be friendly with someone, chances are you'll find a friend. We need those friendships. Are you a friend to other people. With David's temperament, behaved himself wisely. He was sharp. Everything was going good. But there was a difference in King Saul. And that started in verse number 8. They came out to meet Saul in verse number 6. But the song was not focused on Saul. With each chorus that was sung, Saul became more and more angry. One of the traits of friendship we just talked about is that we rejoice with our friends when they're celebrated. If they get something, win something, uh, become something, get a new title, raise, promotion, whatever, we rejoice with them. That's what godly friends do. But one of the signs of jealousy is anger when people rejoice over someone other than me. And that's where Saul is here in verse number 8. It says, Saul was very wroth. You know, when somebody gets that new car, that promotion, that title, are we excited for them? Or do we sit back and say, man, God didn't do that for me. Uh, man, uh, if, if, yeah, if, if I did the things that they did, I'd probably be promoted too. Or if I lived how they did. And we look down on other people, we see that Saul started to eye David. Uh, the he he allowed himself to be secretly consumed with jealousy, which led to rage over who David was. You see, Saul was happy as long as all the songs were about him. Uh, they say Saul has slain his thousands. Woohoo! And the choruses go on and on about Saul. He didn't have a problem with that song, but when he all of a sudden we interject David, there was a problem. You know, as they're singing this song. This song was not meant to degrade Saul. If you think about it, this song was meant to elevate Saul. Hey, Saul has someone in his army who he can count on to slay tens of thousands of people. It all came back to Saul's perspective of the song. See, Saul wanted to be the hero in the song. But think about our lives today In our lives today, when we celebrate our friendships and we celebrate when other friends are exalted, we all win. Because we're all in Christ, we're on the same team. So when somebody wins, when someone is exalted and they're a brother or sister in Christ, I get to celebrate with them. That's a win. That's not something to be disappointed or discouraged or defeated about. That's something that we celebrate because as the body of Christ, we celebrate together. Romans chapter 12 tells us that we rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. We win together and we lose together. And we see our lives, this friendship. We need to realize that when God blesses someone else, we all win together. We celebrate together. There was a temperament. Contrast between these two leaders, which led to number two, the turning. The turning. Look at verse number 10 through 16. It says, It came to pass on the morrow when the evil spirit from God came upon Saul. He prophesied in the midst of the house. And David played with his hand as at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence... Twice. Twice. This wasn't an isolated incident. This is two times this happens. Saul tries to kill David. Twice. The very next day after he heard this song, Saul's entire demeanor, his life changes. His spirit changes. Where now there was a good spirit, where there was encouragement, now there's an evil spirit. You know, there's this stark difference between David and Saul. We don't know a lot about this spirit or the whole context of the evil spirit in verse number 10. But we know that the spirit was evident in Saul's life when he was made king. And now that spirit's gone. The Lord was with Saul at one time. Think about 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse number 14. It says, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. It departed. It left him. There was a time when the Spirit of the Lord rested on Saul. Think about Old Testament, how the Spirit of the Lord would come on people. Now, after Christ, after the cross, after the resurrection, the Spirit of the Lord resides within us and stays within us. But here we see that the Spirit of the Lord would rest on people. Think about Samson. Samson, I I can't tell you how many... Books uh, and storybooks that I've seen, Samson is this incredible Hulk looking person. You know, he's this massive beast, this feet of a man. He's just humongous, looks like he spends all of his life in the gym. I don't think that's what Samson looked like. I think Samson looked like a normal guy like everybody else because the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord would come upon Samson and give him supernatural strength. I don't think Samson was anything significant to look at. I don't think he looked like a strong, massive hulk of a guy. You know, where he'd do the Hulk Hogan, you know, just rip his shirt off, all that. But I don't think that's what he looked like. But the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord would rest on him, just like it did with Saul. But if we go to the New Testament, we see that there is another spirit roaming. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse number 2, it says, We're in time past you walked according to the curse of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. See, there is the Holy Spirit that indwells us, but there is also a supernatural spirit that's working. You know, Think about Ephesians chapter 6. The weapons that we, are, the fight that we're in is not a physical battle, it's a spiritual battle. You think about all of the things that are going on, the force that we're dealing with in our nation today. That evil spirit that we see on display all the time around us is not the same as the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And we see this is not the Holy Spirit because it leads to sin. It says that this spirit that was now residing on Saul caused him distress and agony and jealousy. And is now eating him alive. And because Saul is now dwelling in disobedience, he chose to disobey the Lord. God's spirit departed from him, could not be with him. You know, think about when in our life today, when I walk away from the Lord, I, I've heard people say, you know, when they fell into sin, we understand there is no falling into sin. We step into sin, we choose to sin. It's not just an, Oop, oops, you know, accidental, oh, I slipped and fell into sin. No, no, no. We willfully choose to do evil rather than righteousness. It's a choice. Sin is always a choice. That's why in 1 Corinthians it says that we have a way of escape. We don't have to choose to sin. We can choose to do right. But when I willfully sin against the Lord's commandments for my life, He turns from me. He's still there, but He turns from me. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He turns. He's still there. He's still listening. But now he's listening for an apology. Rather than all of the things that I want. Because I am holding on to sin. But this wasn't just an internal battle that Saul is facing. It worked its way out. You know how... Everything that happens on the inside eventually works its way out. If I harbor bitterness in my heart, you can't keep that secret forever. Because it affects the way that we live. It affects the decisions that we make. If I'm angry at someone, eventually it'll come out my mouth. Whether to that person, an interruption, an explosion, and wrath. Or it'll come out in gossip to someone else. That I'm angry with this person, so I have to talk about them in a negative way. So what's on the inside eventually will work its way outside. So we can clean up the outside all we want to. But a pig will only wear a clean set of clothes for so long. You dress that pig up, you wash them, you take them to the fair, you clean them up, all that stuff. You get them back on the farm and they're running for the first mud hole they see. Why? Because they're a pig. Why do we sin? Because we're super spiritual and holy and super Christian? No, 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 no. We sin because we're sinners. You put any person in the right place with the right opportunity, the right time, and we're all prone to sin. You know, what's, what's the song say? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's who we are. On two occasions, David is playing his harp, very soft, trying to soothe Saul. And Saul says, enough. And he throws the javelin twice, tries to kill him. But what's obvious is found in verse number 12. It says, and Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because he was a great harpist? That Saul was afraid of him? No. Because he was a great warrior? No. Because everybody liked him? No. Why was Saul afraid of him? Because the Lord was with him. And there's the contrast. And you know, that's what the world should see when they look at us, church. That the Lord is with them. That's what they should see in our lives. They should see something different. Saul knew that God's presence was no longer with him. But he looked at David and said, God's presence is with him. And it made him nervous. It made him fearful. But Saul's behavior, this is the thing I love about this story. Saul's behavior didn't change David's behavior. The fact that Saul was wicked did not turn David wicked. The fact that Saul had hatred and anger in his heart did not cause David to be angry and hate Saul. say, Pastor, why is that significant? Because in the course of our life, sometimes bad things happen to us and we feel like we need to retaliate. An eye for an eye, Pastor. Man, I, I, I'm going to turn the other cheek, but after that second cheek, I'm going to show him my fist. You know, it's, it really just comes down to our response. You know, you can't always control the things that happen to you, but you can control how you react to what happens to you. That's all on us. Someone said the attitude within is more important than the circumstances without. The attitude within is more important than the circumstances without. Charles Swindoll said, Words can never adequately convey the incredible impact of our attitude towards life. The longer I live, the more convinced I become that life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how I respond to it. 10% what happens to us and 90% how we respond to it. See, how you and I respond to bad circumstances in our life, says more about us than it does the person who did the wrong. How we respond. That's all on us. I can choose whether or not I want to respond in hatred, in anger, in my flesh, or in the spirit. So we ask, ask ourselves, am I allowing my spirit to be changed because of the actions of other people? Am I choosing bad behavior just because, and I excuse it because... Oh, that's what they did. So I'm just giving them what they gave to me. No, no, no. We're supposed to be different. We see the temperament David and Saul contrast. We see the turning, how all of a sudden Saul's behavior changes. And thirdly, we see the trap that's set. Verse 17, Israel, Judah loves David. Everyone loves David. He behaves himself wisely. Everything he does touches, everything he touches turns to gold. And Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter Merib, her will I give thee to wife. Only be thou valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Now, this sounds great. You know, what is the main hang up with women or with, with men? It's women. It's women. That's one of the vices that Satan uses against men. But Saul couldn't kill him outright. He tried twice. So now he says, I'm going to try and trap David. I'm going to try and set this. He thought, well, man, if I get him in the right position, maybe I can trick him and I can get him. So he tries throughout these first few verses, verse 17 through 19. He tries to give him a wife, tries to convince him to get married. And David says, no, thank you. I'm, not, I'm nothing. I don't need a wife. Thank you, Saul, but no. And so he gives that daughter to someone else. And then in verse number 20, it says, and Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, hey, king, your daughter's been talking about David. And I think she's really on to him. I think she really likes him. I think she loves David and it says and the saying of the thing pleased him so what does he do verse 21 and Saul said I will give him her that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him wherefore Saul said to David thou shalt this day be my son-in-law in one of the twain one of my daughters you're going to be my son-in-law you're going to marry Michael you're going to marry her she already loves you David All you have to do is go out and fight for me and kill a hundred Philistines and you can be my son-in-law. Now let's stop just for a minute and go back. David was already entitled to a wife, remember? Because he killed Goliath. Remember one of the things in chapter 17 when the men came and said, hey, that guy who kills Goliath, he's going to be given all these riches and he's going to get to be the king's son-in-law and his father's house is going to be free in all of Israel. He was already entitled to a wife. And Saul says, hey, David, if you'll do this one more thing, I'll give you a wife. We call that moving the goalpost. But Saul all of a sudden says, I'm going to get David. David. And if I can get him to agree to this, he'll go into battle and I'll let the Philistines kill David. But Saul overlooked the most important part. Four times, behaved himself wisely. And what happens when you behave yourself wisely and we do what honors the Lord? What does he do? He was with us. The Lord was with David. So, in this plan that Saul says, I'm going to fix David, God says, No, I'm going to protect David. I'm going to protect him. But think about how all of this happened. It it never ended. You know, think about the fact that David could have been mad, could have been upset about all this, but he doesn't. Saul's life says, hey, I, everything will be back to normal. As long as I can remove David from the picture, everything will be made right. You know, I think about our lives today. And sometimes we feel like, man, preacher, if this person wasn't in my life, my life would be so much better. If this person that I work with, this person that's in my family, this person that I live next to or across the street or whatever, if they were not in my life, my life would be so much better. You know, we need to be careful with those kind of thoughts and statements because that borders on I have an issue with somebody that's unresolved. I have something that's unconfessed and that has not been properly dealt with. But when I say things or think things or believe things like that and that person moves on or they're no longer around, I feel like, man, it's fixed, but it hasn't fixed my heart problem. My heart is still against that person. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell them his fault between thee and him alone. Matthew 5 verse 23 and 24. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. We're told in the Word of God that we're to make things right with other people who have offended us. It's a biblical thing. It's not a personal thing. It's a biblical thing. I'll never forget years ago, I worked for a guy in high school who was dishonest. On a landscaping company and was just dishonest and did some things that I I didn't think were right and stopped working for him. And I thought, man, I'm not working for this guy anymore. Everything's fine. And we were sitting in church years later. And I was sitting there. We're getting ready to take communion. And the Holy Spirit struck me and said, you need to call that guy and make things right. And I'm thinking, what? this is ridiculous. I haven't thought about this guy in years. Why in the world? And I started thinking about things that I had said about him. And things that I had thought about him. And things that I had never dealt with. So I slipped out of the service. I go in the back room and I called him and he answered the phone and I called his name and I said, hey, I, I need to apologize to you. He was shocked. I didn't go into all detail, but I said, I've held on to some things for several years when we worked together and I just need to apologize to you. And he said, I'm sorry. He, he was shocked and I was relieved. But every now and then, the Lord just kind of pricks your heart and says, hey, you need to make this right. This is not Right. It doesn't have to be your fault, but you and I are responsible with what the Lord leads us to do. And David's character caused him to draw back from this gift from Saul, but he was encouraged in verse number uh, 23, and Saul's servant spake these words in the ears of David, and David said, Seemeth to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law? Seem I am a poor man, lightly esteemed? And so... David finally, reluctantly agrees. He's encouraged. Please take this. Please do this. It's the right thing to do. It says in verse 26, And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law, and the days were not expired. You know, it's hard to tell if their advice was genuine or if they were just doing what they were told, but the point of the matter is this. We know what Saul's intention was. In verse number 25, it says... That Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. That was his goal. He wanted David to die. But he was not anticipating the end result. And that's the last point tonight in verse 27. We see the test. The test. David accepts the challenge. Hey, you need uh, 100 men dead? Done. He goes out and what does he do? He kills 100 Philistines. God protects him. He comes back and it says, verse 28, And Saul knew, saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David. He's afraid. How in the world? I sent this guy out to to die. And all of a sudden, he comes back. Mission accomplished. Hey, now I'm ready for my prize, king. I'll take my wife now. And Saul is like, what in the world? But when we see how he responds, Saul had a front row seat of the Lord's favor. He had a front row seat. He saw his daughter's love for David. But how did Saul respond? Did Saul respond with, you know what, David, I need to apologize. You're right. I've had this wrong spirit towards you. Did Saul repent for his poor behavior? No. Verse number 29 says, And Saul was yet the more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually. You know, this is the unfortunate part of the story because we know the end of the story. David had a great opportunity to be king, and Saul had a wonderful opportunity. To be able to lead David and say, hey, I want to help you as God is preparing you for this next step. I want to try and encourage you so that when this transition takes place, God blesses it. But that's not what Saul did. Saul fought David. Saul could have been his biggest cheerleader. Saul could have, but he refused to give up what had been entrusted to him. You know, I think about Our lives and our service, our time of service that we have, all of us have a timeline. All of us have a time where the Lord has given to us to serve Him. But there will come a time for all of our lives when it will be time to pass the baton to someone else. You know, we can look at that a couple ways. We can look at that as I'm going to hold on to this baton until I die. You know, they're not getting, oh, my cold, dead hand. They can have, you know, we can have that kind of attitude. Or we can say, you know what, I understand that that time is coming. So I want to invest wisely and teach and help someone else take my place. We can say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to resist that and be just like Saul. Or I can begin praying for my replacement. I can train my replacement. I can cheer on my replacement. I can encourage someone else. Hey, man, why don't you, this coming Sunday, why don't you serve alongside me? Hey, I, I've never seen you serve. Why don't you serve alongside me? It will give Miss Martha a heart attack seeing somebody that she doesn't know in service. Uh, but, you know, whatever. But think about all of the ways that we can encourage others to serve and start. We talked last week the fact that the church, the, the, our young people of Crossroads Baptist Church are not the church of tomorrow. They're the church of now. We need to train them now what service looks like. We need to teach them now how the Lord can use them in a mighty way. Because there's a lot of gray hair in the room on a Sunday. I'm thankful for some dark hair in the room on Sunday. But there's some gray hair on Sunday. And none of us... Are going to live forever. Not one of us. We need to be working now so that we can prepare for what's ahead. I like what Gene Getz said. He said, don't let the applause of people be more important than the applause of God. That was Saul's problem. Saul got so used to hearing people applaud him that he could not handle Someone applauding David. That's where he was. No one lived that statement out any worse than Saul. He let the praise get to his head, started believing all of his own credit, all of his own press. Remember when we met Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9, he said about himself, Hey, I'm the smallest in my house. In 1 Samuel 9 verse 21, I'm the smallest of the tribes. My family is the least of all the families. Remember when Samuel spoke to him in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 17. He said, when you were little in your own sight, God blessed you and elevated you to be the king. When there was a time when Saul saw himself as a nobody. Yet he got to the place where he thought he was somebody. And it became his downfall. Hey church, let's never forget that without him we are nothing. We're nothing. With him. We're still nothing. Hey, we can be used by him. But don't ever let success, a little bit of success, a little bit of importance, a small role, some service, get to your head and think, man, I'm I'm pretty good. Hey, I, I do this well. Because all of us are susceptible to step into sin. All of us could be named Saul. Every single one of us. We have to fight that And we have to prepare ourselves for eventually, it's not going to be us. We're going to be in the sidelines cheering somebody else on. How many of you have heard somebody, a senior saint who says, man, I I remember when I did that. How many of you have heard somebody say, you know, I, I wish I could still do that. I wish I could still be involved in that. Hey, that's going to be all of us one day. Are we using the time that we have wisely? Are we preparing for the one day where it'll be someone else? Are we doing anything to train the next person? Or are we holding on tightly with that death grip? Hey, I'm never going to get rid of this. And that's where Saul was. 17 years, David had to wait. Saul could have handed it off and said, David, I'm going to give it to you now. My time's done. But he didn't. caused all kinds of havoc in David's life. All because he knew his time was coming to an end. Hey, All of our times are coming to an end, and we need to do stuff right now to prepare for what's coming. Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for how you used David's life to show us things that we can apply today. Lord, I ask that you please bless our time. Please help us to see ourselves in the story. Lord, I ask that you please help us to prepare for the day. Lord, when it won't be us, it'll be someone else. Lord, help us to have the right friendships, the right relationships. Help us to have the right attitude as we prepare for that day. Lord, we sure do love you. We thank you for all that you've done and all that you're leading us to do. Lord, please bless us and use us in a special way in Jesus' name. Amen.